It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine, and today's special guest, Vicki Dobbs. She wants women to know that they're not alone in their busy worlds, that they can carve out time for themselves and not feel selfish or guilty. I know your ears are perking up as you're listening to this. Vicki's goal is to see everyone live every day empowered by the voice of their own authentic truth, seeing this life's journey as an ever upward spiraling ascension of the human spirit, leading it towards wisdom, wholeness, and joy. Vicki's book, which we're going to talk about today, Get Off the Shelf, Choose You First, You Have a Right to Be Happy, book about how we, especially as women, set ourselves ourselves aside in service to everyone and everything else in our lives except ourselves. Readers learn practical techniques and tools for getting off their shelves. As the founder of Wisdom Evolution and head cheerleader for the You First Revolution, Vicki Dobbs brings 40 years of entrepreneurial experience into her spiritual writing and work. She is a foundation for shamanic. She is a foundation for shamanic studies, Harner trained shamanic counselor, a warrior goddess to um, facilitator and an artist of the spirit life coach. Um, so good morning, Vicki, and welcome to a fine time for healing. Good morning, Randy, and thank you so much for having me this morning. It's my absolute pleasure to have you. Okay, Vicki. So your book is called Get Off the Shelf. Choose you first. You have a right to be happy. And wow, this speaks to so many, not only women. There are plenty of men out there that, um, that this would speak to, too. But I know that your book really focuses on women, how we put ourselves aside and, and are everything to everybody. So, um, Vicki, why did you write the book? Well, I'm not sure I really know. It uh, it started out as kind of a, a very visceral dream I had, walking down a hallway lined in bookshelves, and there I was sitting on the top shelf, very agitated, asking myself what the heck I was doing up there on that shelf. And it just sort of made its way out from there. I took a couple of writing classes, and I'd been working with Lynn Andrews in writing for years and mentoring in her writing school. And suddenly it just began to take form, and pretty soon I had a lot of pages of words. (laughs) And it it took five years from when the words started flowing out to when it actually got a a bound paperback out into the world. So it's been an interesting journey. Yes. Writing a book, publishing a book, and and everything that follows is a very interesting journey. Uh, So why, so you explained why you called it Get Off the Shelf. Um, But how do we put ourselves on the shelf? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that especially women of of my age and older were all raised to put others first. That um, anywhere from from our spiritual upbringings that said God first, and then our husbands, and then our children, and then us to um, let the as a kid let let that one go first, or or it's okay, just wait your turn. And all of those little subtle things that say other people matter before us. And it's a way of lessening the connection from the heart to the world. Because when you keep separating yourself from you in service to everything and everybody else but you, you lose you. And that's what happened to me. I I lost me. And when I was struggling as a, a young mother and wife and, and entrepreneur, I've been self-employed since 1972. Wow. Um, I I just got some help, and the first question that the uh, psychologist asked me is, who are you? And I rattled off this long repertoire of what I did, and she looked at me and she said, I didn't ask you what you did. I asked you who you are. I couldn't answer the question. Had no clue. You know, Vicki, it's interesting because I do that with my clients as well. And and, uh-huh. and I get the same response. They look at me totally blank. So then I start. Yeah. I say, well, what about this? What about that? How are you with this? How are you with that? And then I get, then their, their engine gets going. <laughs> and then they begin right. telling me who they are. But initially, we really don't take that time to figure out who we are or get to know ourselves in that way there's there's not a class for it in school that's for sure and um i think there's the the resurgence in the 80s and 90s of women beginning to think more about themselves um brought about great teachers who came out into the world and started saying hey you know what it's okay and it doesn't have to be with a uh balled up fist or a hammer, you know, step into yourself with power, not power over, but power from within. I can't imagine living any other way, although I was born in the 50s, so I remember what the woman's role was, and things were very different then. So so I get it. And, you know, as a a narcissistic abuse coach, um, a lot of the people that come to me as clients have issues with codependency and also focusing on pleasing everyone else. And it's sort of where they get their, it's not necessarily comfort, it's their value. It's their value, where they get their value. It's their identity. Yes. Yes. And that's exactly right. It's, you know, it's, it's finding that, place that mirrors back to you you're a good person you have worth you have value and when we look outside of ourselves for that then we become master codependents i mean i'm right there with y'all i i was absolutely the best at making sure everybody was taken care of and happy in their world had what they needed to thrive and ultimately, when you live that way, it's at your expense. 
So putting you first and, and setting yourself at the top of the priority list is not a selfish act. It's a, a self-sustaining one. Mm, good way to put it. <clears throat> um, did you feel as if you would only be liked or loved if you did for other people? Yes. It was okay. very, I, I was, I can look back at my history and I think I talk about it in the book. When I was in the middle of the third grade, we were transferred from a um, elementary school at our local university that was kind of like a teaching school that was very different than public school. And we were, buses had been stopped and it was too far a distance to walk and life moves on. So we ended up going, my sister was in the middle of the fifth grade, so it had to be a huge impact for her. And we ended up in public school, and I knew it, nobody, middle of third grade. And it was a time when I found myself buying friends in my life. And I think that, that that's a habit that moved on, whether that was doing something for the people in my life or uh, supplying them with something. There was a time when I loaned a credit card to one of my son's friend's mother to buy Christmas presents for her kids, and then I got stuck with the bill. So often our best efforts to give can be very self-destructive. Not, are they, not only are they self-destructive to ourselves, but they really don't really help other people. Um, I mean, unless we're giving them a hand up, you know, unless we're helping them over a hump and giving them exactly. the support to allow them to take it further. But anytime we are doing for other people, we're not helping them at all, are we? No, we're robbing them of their own experience and growth. We take away their, in, in essence, it's, not, it's a very subtle form of, of energy exchange, but we're taking power to make ourselves feel better and robbing them of their experience in learning how to take care of themselves. So it's that old story about, you know, teach them to fish. Don't just constantly give them fish. So as you say, the hand up is important, but then what comes next? They have to be able to stand up there on their own. That's that's exactly right. So in your book, you talk about um, the W-O-P-T, what other people Whopped. think. <laughs> what? What other people Whopped. think. And yep. I was raised with this mantra, what will people think? Oh. You know, <laughs> that's what my mother said all exactly. the time. You didn't, you didn't step yep. out of line because what will people think? Um, and it's a reflection on your parents, heaven forbid. Guilt yes. right there. Yep, terrible guilt. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. that's how I was raised. I was raised with guilt. Yes, the perception of perfection. It didn't matter what went on behind closed doors. When you walked out the front door, you represented your family, and you were to be as a perfect little child, little girl, young adult, woman that you could be because it wasn't necessarily a reflection on you. It was a reflection on your family. That's right. Or so they thought. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. Exactly. I think Mona Lisa Smile is the best movie to go watch if you are stuck in that place in your life where you don't matter in your own eyes. 
rent the movie Mona Lisa Smile. Look it up on whatever streaming service you use. Sandra Bullock, it's set, I believe, in the 50s. And it is, I left that movie crying. I'd seen it with my husband, and he said, what's wrong? And I said, just let me cry. That's the way I grew up. And it explained so much to me. Um, That that was an eye-opener. I'm definitely going to look for that. I've never seen it. So you said that, um, you know, in school, it's very easy, or back, you know, when you were in, um, in grade school, to be labeled. So if you talk too much in class or you raised your hand or, it, you know, you got, you got labeled teacher's pet and you were a know-it-all, if you yes. always had the answers. And, um, and you say in your book, and you actually said to me before we came on, that you talk a lot. So, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> so what, why are these labels bad? Well, I think they they put a kid in a box, and whenever you start building boundaries around yourself that aren't yours, they are somebody else's, you begin shrinking. So when I was told I talked too much, um, I took it as a bad thing. And what my mother didn't explain at the time was that I wish Vicki didn't talk so much. The problem is she's always right. <laughs> I didn't get the second half of that, which would have been a compliment. I only got the first half. And then um, my dear husband, we just celebrated 50 years together, once told me in a coffee shop to be quiet. He wanted to know what the other people there knew. He already knew what I knew. And that was simply a way that was, you know, good old cowboy culture. And because I carried that, hurt of you talk too much from a child, that was like ripping a scab off an old wound. And again, children should be seen and not heard, right? So when I went out with my grandparents and they played cards, my sister and I had a quilt that we were were on the floor with our own cards and we were quiet. And you sit in church and you be quiet. And I was not by nature a quiet person. So the child in me was being choked. My throat was being shut down and I didn't even know it. And I think sometimes the reaction to that is that we overplay. So I talk more. (laughs) (laughs) Even my own dad, when we had CBs in our cars, you know, he was Papa Wolf and mom was Mama Wolf and and me, I was Jabber Jaws. (laughs) So that's so cute. How do we strike a balance between being too much of one thing and not enough of another? (laughs) Is that a problem? First, you have to give yourself permission to matter. You have to give yourself permission to choose you first. And I think one of the easiest ways as adults that I, I hope people will hear is that put you on your calendar first. And hold yourself accountable for showing up for that appointment, just like you would a doctor's appointment. Even if it's just 15 minutes you've set aside somewhere in your day to spend time with yourself. 
And, you know, I talk in my book about the F words in our life, and I, I have to thank my real estate mentor, Walter Sanford. Thank you, Walter, if you ever hear this. He's in Kankakee, mm-hmm. Illinois now, and has two little girls of his own that, gosh, must be in high school. And he was at a mastermind event that he was hosting with Tony Robbins and Deepak Chopra and Paul Pilzer. And his goal was to teach us that real estate was part of our life. It wasn't our life. And he said, you have to make room for the F words in your life. Faith, family, fun, friends, fitnesses, and finance. And if you balance those things, then you have a life that's fulfilling and not draining. And I've always carried that with me. So that's that's one of the first things I teach, whether it's a real estate class or it's a personal empowerment class, is you have to calendar you first. So one of the questions that I get a lot for people that are coming out of relationships where they've been told that they don't matter, I mean, not only told, but brainwashed to believe that they don't matter. So people have a hard time with the concept of loving yourself, taking care of yourself, caring for yourself, because they've been told that it's selfish. So what words of wisdom do you have to say to people who are apprehensive about loving themselves? I think the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, why you first? And it's not an easy question to answer, um, but why is it important to put you first? And part of it is it's, it's like putting the oxygen mask on yourself in the airplane first. If you don't, then the people that you care the most about are the ones who suffer. So when you don't put yourself first, you can find yourself in a state of discomfort, dis-ease. You may have a harder time thinking. You get sick more often. The quality of your work suffers. You feel overwhelmed. You can wake up tired after a full night's sleep or or even forget what you're about to say and miss deadlines. And you end up isolating yourself and avoiding social situations. You're, you're just cranky and don't feel good. And you snap at people and they don't want to be around you. And that's all symptomatic of the bigger issue in your own dis-ease. And... When you get to that place of depletion, which is is when everybody has sucked everything out of you and there's nothing left for you, then anxiety comes in, depression comes in. Um, Lots of, of physical and emotional things can begin to build up because you have lost your connection to you. The strength and health of your body the the mind, even your own heart and soul suffer when you don't put you first. Thank you. You said that really well. Thank you so much. What um what are some of the messages that we get from religion that tells us that we're supposed to do for others? I know this is, can be a problem for people when they're trying to overcome um this lack of self-love and self-care, and then they keep going back to this, you know, Bible um, statement that says love others, you know. Actually, it's love others as you love yourself. No, 
why don't you tell me because I'm not religious. So, and I think you mentioned well, it in your I'm, book. I, I grew up with, you know, faith in, in my family. And I think that faith is the word I'd rather use than religion. I have okay. not studied the Bible. I have, have certainly had it in my life. Um, and I think that when you, you say do unto others as you would have them do unto you, then if you're going to do for others what you want them to do for you, why wouldn't you include yourself in that? So for, right. for me, I think that when you when you have, have lost the connection to you, you've lost your connection to source, God, God as creator by whatever name that, that you call that, presence, that oneness that we all feel, um, and it's it's when you reconnect to that universal I am, for lack of a better word, then you begin to, to look, hopefully, with a little more grace and compassion at your own self and allow yourself to matter but it is a choice you have to choose to put you first because our world doesn't give us permission to do that men or women we are all driven by what we produce and keeping up with the joneses um and it's it's uh it it there's no place in our growing up years, even in today's world of of freedom and liberation and equality, it still is always based on what we do, not who we are. And if we can turn that mirror around and reflect back to us the beauty of who each of us is individually, as people, as human beings, having an experience on this earth plane, then we reflect the light of who we are into the world. And as that light grows, the shadows around us lessen and we blossom. It's like the picture on the front of my book, You First. It's, you know, uh, it's a girl in a flower reaching over the edge of the petals, watering the pot that she's growing out of. So it's about (laughs) nurturing yourself, body, mind, heart, and soul. And and that isn't a selfish act. That's that's one that's that is life saving. It's essential. When that oxygen mask drops, put it on you first. So I found um the area in the book where you talk about um how you when you saw the imbalance of continual giving, 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 doing, 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 and then you had to deal with the conflict that was in your head that said it is better to give than to receive. <clears throat> so how do we deal with that conflict? Well, a very dear friend um, once explained to me a story about a friend of hers who constantly gave. And I was at one of Lynn Andrews' events, and we were – asked to seek out one of the oracles that was on campus and and take a question to them. And I was brand new in in my own journey of of 
discovery and I had no clue really what an oracle was and I didn't know any of these people and it's like walking up to a stranger with something that's sitting on your heart and opening up. So I was struggling to find somebody and I hear a voice go, Vicky, and I looked around and here was this beautiful white-haired woman sitting on the bench in the, in the walkway up to the chapel and she says, I think you're looking for me. And this woman I was very intimidated by, she was a very silent person and in that silence just overwhelmingly powerful in her presence and I thought oh boy and up the stairs I went and sat down with her and my question was why is it so difficult for me to receive and so she shared how a doctor friend of hers gave unconditionally continuously to everybody in her life did everything for them until she got sick and she got so sick that she life expectancy was was questioned and she finally had to ask for help to live and in that opening up to receive the help from others she survived and that was such an eye-opener for me. And then Lynn teaches how when you do everything for everybody else, you rob them of their experience, and you are, in essence, taking their power. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that that sounds more devastating than it does empowering. So when you put those two things together, giving constantly takes everything out of you and you die, and giving to other people robs them of their experience and shame on you. It's like now now I'm stuck between these two places. How much do you give and can you open yourself up to receive? And so there's a balance struck there when you 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 allow your heart to give, but you also have to allow your heart to open up to receive. And that's as simple as accepting a compliment without a rebuttal. And and that was a hard one for me to learn. Somebody could say, gee, I like your hair today, and I'd say thank you, but I wish my bangs were shorter. <laughs> or that's a lovely outfit you have on today. Oh, thank you, but I think I look better in blue than green. What do you think? And those butt words in our life tell the universe to stop. Whatever positive is coming at us, we're not ready for because we've just thrown the butt word out there that's a wall. And I recognize um, that way of thinking. I mean, I was, I suffered from codependency for many, many years. And I was one of those people who, you know, I just, a compliment, I just took it and just kind of made nothing out of it. Uh, Oh, me, oh no, you know, you're so much prettier or whatever it was. But um, when I'm telling my clients how to proceed in life without being victimized by predators, because they tend to develop a pattern of that, one of the first things I say is you're going to learn, have to learn how to receive and not give. Because what codependent people tend to do is somebody does one thing for you, you do 10 things back. And people don't want that. that. They're not asking. If somebody does something nice for you, they want to do it for you. But as soon as you begin doing all these things back, they lose lose respect for you. 
Right, right. There's There has to be a balance. You can't always be the one who picks up the check. Or you rob that other person of the experience of gifting you with picking up the check. Right. And honestly, that constant giving can be a source of power. You know, it's it's when you look at the darker side of that codependent um, action, we perceive it as making somebody else's life easier, and it doesn't matter how it affects us. The the important thing is is that we make the world a better place for everybody else, and that can be a source of power. That that's a big ego stroke. Here, let me do it. I can do that for you. Oh no, no worries. I'll take care of it. And that's that can be a power trip. So there's a dark side of that giving aspect as well. Yeah, you you talk about um, when you began to use discernment um, to be sure that your tendency to give was not coming from a need to feel good about you but from a true place of service. Yes, that's very right. different, and that's what you're talking about, right? Yes, yes. Are you self-serving or are you serving others? And how do we know the difference? Well, I think you, you can feel the difference. Do I need to do this or do I want to do this? And if that need overpowers the rational want to and it becomes a habit then chances are the people in your life will begin to drift away because they're disempowered they no longer feel good around you because they're worried about what you're going to give them or what you're going to do for them or or what you're going to try to fix my daughter once shared with me mom i just need you to listen i don't need you to fix anything wow that was powerful for me yeah, I remember my daughter calling from college um, and just telling me all the things that were going wrong. And I started to do what a mother does, you know. And she goes, I'm just calling to vent. I just want to vent. Yes, yeah. I don't need to, yeah. you know. And I think a lot of times right. people just need that listening ear. Yes. Listening is a skill. And there are very few people who master it because they're generally – running around in their head how they're going to answer whoever they're listening to and they never really hear the person who is speaking. So listening is a learned skill. It's, it's um, as my teachers would call it, it's sitting in sacred witness of somebody else's story so that they feel free to share it. Right. So true. Um, yeah. You talk about a powerful message that Lynn Andrews had gifted you. Um, and this was in relation to building a relationship, how to build a new relationship with your husband, Danny. And she said, if you want to build a new kind of relationship with Danny, you will need to mirror for him who you want him to be for you. How do we do that? Oh, that was that was such a... I, I didn't know Lynn at the time. I had taken the first year in her mystery school, and at this particular time, I went to her Hawaii event, and I was not in a good place in my life when, when I found her teachings and the sisterhood's work, and 
I um, I thought, okay, I'm going to have a one-on-one. And for the life of me, I couldn't come up with a question to ask. So I, I finally just consoled myself by saying, this is an opportunity to get to know your teacher. And there again, I'm going to pay for the opportunity to do something with somebody else, which was a pattern in my life. And... So I went to sit down, and I broke my fingernail on the cast iron chair in the cafe. And so there I I sat down, and my first comment was, uh, you know, oh, drat, which is probably not what I said, that I broke a fingernail, and she laughed and showed her beautiful fingernails, and she said, I could never have nails like this when I was writing because they always broke. And we started a conversation like two friends as opposed to teacher and student. And that broke the ice, sitting there having a meal, sitting out on the uh, lanai at the ocean, and eventually after kind of sharing a bit of my story with her, um, she said, well, leave him. And I looked back at her and said, I don't want to. The truth of the matter was I don't think I thought I could. So she very profoundly said to me, then you have to mirror for him who you want him to be for you. And my first response was, damn, that puts all the responsibility back on me again. Can't I just get out from underneath all this responsibility? And by then I had, you know, kids in college, and and it's not like we'd only been married five or seven years. By then we'd been married, I guess, 25-plus years. And I didn't want the responsibility of, of happy anymore. I was ready for somebody else to take that on for me. So I tried. I said, thank you, when he did the grocery shopping. And I said, thank you. You have no idea how much you're doing the dishes meant for me today. And I said, thank you, when he did his laundry. And I began to point out the positive things that he was doing in my life. And then we began dating again. And I set time aside on Friday afternoons for us. And if I needed to go back to work, because a realtor's life is anything but nine to five, uh, Friday afternoons were our date time. And we'd either go to a movie, go to dinner, whatever. But there was that block of time that I put on the calendar for me and him. And we began to build a relationship back again. So that was... That was not what I wanted to hear from Lynn, but it was one of the best messages that probably saved my marriage. I I don't know where I would have gone from that point because it it was rocky, as all marriages get. You know, anybody who makes it to 50 years is going to tell you it ain't easy, kids. But if you love somebody, it's okay when you don't like them. And it's, um, it's that love that lies deep in the bottom of your heart that will always bring you back together. If you yes. don't take the easy way out, you know, it's hard work. It is hard work. Yeah. I think that um, people who are doers and givers, um, a lot of times they, I'm just going to say we, because you and I have been there. We tend to get upset when nobody does it for us. But really the truth is we don't allow anybody to do it for us. And we don't ask right for help. Right? We don't ask yeah. For, for help we're just like I'll just do it I'll do it I'll do it you know I'll do the dishes right. I'll do this I'll do that and then we wonder why nobody does anything back well why would they yeah. it's very easy exactly and then we become you know the little uh gripey wife that 
is unhappy and they don't have a clue why we're unhappy because we've never told them what we need from them. Yes. Whether it's our children or our spouses or our best friends, if we don't share from our own good health what we need for somebody else to to help us, to empower us, to support us. Um, you know, I my husband gave me a, a ladies' model lawnmower for Mother's Day one year. <laughs> he thought it was kind of cool because I always mowed the lawn, so he bought a smaller, easier to use model. And I thought, you know, the, the guy just doesn't get it. And I used to tell him, bring me flowers. I love flowers. He said, I have a waste of money. They just die. But you know what? Now he brings me flowers. And so it's a balancing act of of being okay when they don't get it right, but also sharing when they do. And, again, um, you know, I, I readily admit that when I hit bottom, I got help. And... When uh, my psychologist that I'd been seeing for years moved to Colorado, she referred me to her partner in the office. And and the first thing that uh, he told me was that um, I had a right to ask for myself. And he gave me a languaging that would be less assaultive than, you know, the anger that blows as soon as, we feel backed in a corner, or the anger that explodes in advance of what we perceive is going to be anger coming at us. So he said, try using this languaging. And he said, I don't know if what you said, I heard the way you meant it, but here's what I heard, and it hurt. Mm -hmm. And that was a very powerful experience for me. You really have to be kind of okay with yourself to be able to react with that first when it's in a heated moment. But when I have the the space around me to be able to say that, it's profound. Because we hear with our own filters. They speak through their own filters. And and maybe our filters are crossed to the point where only half of what gets said gets through and we get insulted or hurt by it, and then we either get mad or we shut down. Yes, we do. Yes, I absolutely. I absolutely know about that, understand that personally, and, you know, from what other people tell me. One of the things that I hear, um, I think particularly women say, is uh, this is this is one of the things that I think – causes them heartache in their marriage is they say to their partner, if you love me, you will know what I want. And then they sit back and they have expectations. And their poor partner, their husband, whatever, has no idea what to do. (laughs) Right. You know, and a a good, somebody who lacks self-worth, who doesn't have the confidence in themselves to walk out into the world as as their authentic self will worry about what other people think and it's the same thing our husband hasn't got a clue what we want because we've never told him 
but we have expectations they have no idea about. <laughs> well, we place that same uh, power in somebody else's hands when we worry about what other people think. We have, you know, so I can vividly remember getting ready to, to go to a meeting that I was emceeing as the current chairman of the board of directors for our Chamber of Commerce. And I changed clothes three times. And I was so worried about presenting as who I thought, the world thought, I should be in that role. And most of us have never asked the world or the people around us or even our spouses what they think. So we're placing patient from them, on them, and we've never even asked them. And so it's a vicious circle that we can get into when uh, our expectations get in front of our decisions. That's right. And if we don't tell somebody what we want, it's not fair to expect that you're going to get that. Exactly. Very well we said. All, we, yeah. all have, we all have mouths and we're supposed to use them. We have to speak up for ourselves. Yes. Um, but we have to give ourselves permission to matter enough to do that. That's true. You're right. Yeah. You're right. So, Vicki, you know, yours, um, your life has not been all wine and roses. And I know that you <laughs> lost your son in yeah. a very tragic, sudden way. Were you already on this path of self-discovery when that happened, or did that um, promote you to, or, or in, you know, cause you to move forward in that way? I found um, Lynn's books. A real estate client gifted me an old, faded paperback copy of Medicine Woman. And I loved reading historical fiction. I loved reading some of the the um, novels that were written in times gone past. And I loved history. So for me, they were great storybooks. And that was in 1999. And then I found Lynn's events through her forum that she had back before the internet was a an everyday word and I went to one of her events and thought I'd stepped off into you know a, a land of who knows where I'd just never been exposed to anything like it I'd never done any meditation I'd never done any guided journey work I, I didn't have the language to be in this group of people so it was very strange and then I joined her school in 2001. So when my son was killed in 2005, it was that circle and those teachings that I clung to and that supported and upheld me and my family as we traversed grief as, as the, um, the front runner in our lives at that time. And grief is an awful taskmaster, but a great teacher. And sometimes you, you just, um, it's all you can do to put one foot in front of the other or roll out of bed in the morning. But mm-hmm. I was blessed to have people around me who cared. And 
um, teachings that I had been learning that were self-sustaining. So we survived, our marriage survived, our family survived, and it um, it's it's a journey. It's it's part of our history now. That was 17 years ago, June 30th, and it seems like yesterday. It's so hard to imagine going through that. Yeah. I just really can't even begin to imagine it. Now, throughout your book, you talk about communicating with nature, creatures, birds, so forth and so on. <clears throat> Is that part of your shamanic training or shamanic journey? Or well, I think the, the yeah. shamanic the shamanic world is the world of nature. It, it's about being connected to all that is, and recognizing that there is light, i.e., I. life, in all things animate and inanimate. And we start. It's, it's, you know, shamanism is a way of life. It's not a religion. It isn't a cult. It isn't a um, ritualistic do this, do that, do this, do that. It is a way of living that allows for there to be a lot more to this world than what we see. It allows for there to be great wisdom in the mystery of all of that that's unknown. And it gives us permission to go within for answers as much as we seek without for teachers to tell us how. And for me, one of the first things was um, I woke up one morning to a cacophony of birds. I mean, like, wow, what's going on? And I tried to go back to sleep, wasn't happening. And I had not previously heard, there are a lot of birds in the trees. We had a lot of trees around the house. But, I mean, this was, was a real cacophony. So I got up and wandered outside in the early morning hours that it was, and there wasn't a bird in sight and no noise. <laughs> and we had four big raywood ash trees in our front yard. So in between each of those trees was a pair of feathers one black and one blue, so a crow feather and a blue jay. So my rational mind is telling me that, you know, these guys were having a disagreement and that's the noise that I heard and they've moved on past it. And and yet there was a pair of feathers in between every tree. So I picked up that three pair of feathers and I took them back in the house with me and I I knew that there was something to that that I couldn't name yet. And for me, if I look back at that, that was sort of my awakening. I have have had Hawk as a, a companion for many years, and, and for me it's like when I'm feeling lost, Hawk has a tendency to show up. And when that happens, whether it's driving down a road and I'm not sure I'm on the right road, and then there sits Hawk on a fence post or in a tree, that's kind of, for me, symbolic that I am on the right road. But it also is my own personal journey. And when we moved two and a half years ago to a new place, I left my home of 40-plus years where I lived with hawks, and I knew them. And 
and they were a pair that nested in the palm trees on the neighbor's property and and I saw them and their babies flying overhead and and it was it was very humbling and self-sustaining for me and in this new place I never saw the hawk until last year when when I happened to be working in some uh clean I still haven't unpacked all the boxes let me just say that I I'm not a hoarder <laughs> but I do have a lot of boxes of rocks and books and and things like that and being a craft person I have a lot of craft materials so I was unboxing something and I heard a hawk and I went outside just in time to see one fly from the southwest to the northeast and land in a tree just off the northeast corner of our property and I thought wow they finally spoken to me again here it's going to be okay and I my daughter found a, a feather on the property, and if you read my book, you'll you'll see that there's a huge significance for me with feathers, especially hawk feathers, because at this point in my life, that's my son talking to me. And she found a hawk feather here on the property while I was in Arizona and sent me a picture of it, and I thought, they're trying. They're trying to get me connected to this place. <laughs> so the, the birds have been... Um, they're great messengers, you know, and and you don't have to read the books on what their significance is in your life. Just think about what their significance is in their life and, and let it be okay in whatever that works out to be for you. And the same with trees. You know, it's, it's um, I absolutely love trees, and I couldn't tell you why. In the summertime when I was a kid, Every summer from 9 to to 18, I went to YMCA camp in the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains, Lake Sequoia. And there would be a shift in me when that old yellow school bus would hit that elevation where the scent of pine and manzanita would drift in the windows. And I, it was just a shift. And, and for me that, I didn't know that was energy. I didn't know that that held such special meaning for me. But as I looked back from my adult years and learning more about energy and how it affects us and and moves us, that was my connection to God. That scent will, will take me to a place of not just awe but wonder. Mm. And a little sign on the the side of the path on the way to to the chapel at camp said, Be still and know that I am God. Oh, Mm. what wisdom there is in silence. And the trees and the rocks can gift us that wisdom if we just slow down and are quiet enough to listen. Thank you for that. That's really beautiful. It's so inspiring. Um, Vicki, you say that one of your sacred teachers, Don Oscar, wrote, let us remember so as not to become meaningless, let us forget so as not to go mad. What does that mean? Yes. Well, I think when we remember who we are and not what we are, but who we are, that deep, authentic truth of us, then we aren't meaningless in this life. We we have value, and it's a value, again, beyond what we do, but it's a value in who we are. 
when we when we forget the world um, in all its madness, then we allow the madness to encircle us. What What are his exact words in the second half of that? I always remember the first half, but not the exact hmm. part of the second half. Let's see. Well, you say your daughter wrote in a Facebook post, but all you say, he said, one of my sacred teachers, Don Oscar, wrote, let us remember so as not to become meaningless, let us forget so as not to go mad. Um, and he's just yeah. Saying, yeah, I think that's all, all you put all of there. All the remembering of the, the hard parts, when you're constantly remembering what could have been, should have been, would have been, you're in the past. And it will drive you mad, in essence. So if you are in that place of constantly thinking ahead, what will be, what can I, what should I, then you aren't present in the now. And those two aspects of remembering and thinking ahead keep you out of where you are now. And and that's the madness, I believe, that Don Oscar's talking about. And the worth of our own selves is the meaningless life. If if we don't find that worth in us, then what we do in the world won't be remembered because we don't have value for ourselves in the remembering. And that's that's my interpretation of, of what he said. We'd have to ask him. He's he's just the most amazing teacher. Looking into the depth of his eyes will will take you um, out of your way. <laughs> I don't know a better way to do it. It's just he he's an amazing teacher, and there's absolutely no ego around him when he's teaching. It's very much. Um, I, I just feel gifted that somebody talked me into going to one of his events because he he is a profound teacher. Hmm. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about is fear. And you say, when we buy into fear, it owns us. Um, and that we should become fearless so that we cannot be controlled. What does fearless mean to you? Wow. Being able to make your own decisions without worrying about what other people think. So if, if you can set WAP aside, then, then fear doesn't usually have a hold on you because you're not concerned about what other people think. And in the world that we live in today, we are being pummeled by fear in every place we look. And it's being dished out in all the stuff that we see, whether it's movies or television or the books that we read, um, fear seems to be a pervasive energy in our lives right now, and you have a choice. I'm not saying that fearless is walking into something without thinking about the consequences. Fear, courage is not the absence of fear. It is the continuing down the path through the fear. <laughs> so 
you can either let fear control your life or you can be fearless and live. Doesn't mean don't pay attention. Obviously, I'm not going to reach down and pet a rattlesnake. But it's, um, I also don't have to live in fear of going outside because there might be a rattlesnake. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm watching people now let fear control their lives. And if I could say one thing to all of you, it's don't buy into it. It is definitely the most powerful way to control people, scare them to death, literally. I agree with you. I do agree with you, and so many people do buy into that. You know, I see the same thing all the time, and I'm thinking to myself, think for yourself. Think for yourself. Stop listening. Yes, yeah. It's it's okay to listen, but make your own freaking decisions. Don't base right. your life on what other people tell you to do or what you think other people will think about what you do unless you've asked them. And then if you know what they think, make your own decision based on how you feel. Give yourself permission to choose you first and stop setting yourself aside in fear of what other people think or you know, of what might uh, happen there's um there was I, I don't know the quote exactly but there's a quote from buddha you know that says something very similar D- don't just because people say it do- doesn't mean it's true or you should trust it don't even trust it if i say it but when you right i'm paraphrasing of course but it's it's a wonderful sure. quote so um Okay, so we're t- we talked today about your book, Get Off the Shelf, Choose You First. You have a right to be happy. Um, and Vicki, uh, where can we find this beautiful, wonderful book? On Amazon or, or any place good books are sold, you'll also find uh, my first little short read, which is You First, Practical Wisdom for Nurturing Body, Mind, Heart, and Soul. And that book is based on the old shamanic um, questions that you went to a healer and they said, you know, when did you stop dancing? When did you stop singing? When did you stop finding the sweetness in silence? And when did you stop telling your stories? And based on your answer, that's how they would approach helping you heal whatever was bothering you. So in that little short read, I talk about, you know, singing, dancing, and telling your stories and finding the sweetness of silence. And it it was actually a chapter in Get Off the Shelf that became its own little book first. And it, um, but yeah, you you can pick it up on my website at VickiDobbs.com. That's V-I-C-K-I-D-O-B-B-S.com. I'm on Facebook. Uh, Vicki L. Dobbs is my author site. And I'd love to have you join me there and Join the You First Revolution. Find that page on, on Facebook and join us there. Um, I do a Friday Food for Thoughts email that I send out that is just a, a continuum of my stories and hopefully inspiration and food for thought. So you can sign up on my website for that. And um, I just encourage you to join the You First Revolution, whether that is physically or metaphorically, because hashtag you matter. You have a right to be happy. I love it. 
I have so enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for all your wisdom and inspiration that you shared with us today. Um, It's really been great. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Randy. I'm honored by the invite and and just um, really starts my morning beautifully by having (laughs) these great conversations. So thank you so much for having me on your show. You are so welcome. Have a great day, Vicki. Take care. You too, Randy. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye.